0: Dear Mr. Brian Boyd,
1: no doubt by now you have received full information Dear Mrs. about the untimely death of your son. No family. words of mine can ever relieve the, the doubt that you have. felt his loss tremendously. He was a fine soldier, and he believed very strongly in what...
0: It's no secret anymore that we were involved in one of the most important operations of this war. Al was the one who held us all together. He was always
1: the first volunteer came to life.
0: a clearing near a road where over 4,000 troops
1: were Your husband served in a combat happened. unit. Whose dangerous duty is to place itself in which, which we all cherish Whoa, so dear. The loss of me and others like
0: him is a distinct blow. I fully understand your desire to learn as much as possible regarding the circumstances. of them were in the same company in the 29th division but we split them up after the Sullivan brothers died on the journal Uh, any uh, contact with the fourth son James no sir he was dropped about 15 miles inland near Newville but that's still deep behind assuming private Ryan even survived the jump, he could be anywhere in fact he's probably KIA and frankly sir we go sending some sort of rescue mission flat-hatting throughout swarms of German reinforcements all along our axis of advance. They're gonna be KIA, too. <laughs> in Boston, bear with me. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine that would attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. <clears throat> I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved, lost, the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. alive. We are going to send somebody to find him.
1: Well, once again, welcome to Hope, everybody. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. And a special hello to those of you who are maybe visiting Hope for the first time. As you're getting to know us and getting to know me, one of the things that would be important for you to know about me, I love movies. And sometimes people will ask me, Scott, do you have like a top 10 list? What are your favorite movies of all time? I cannot do that. But if I was forced to come up with a top 10 list, this movie, Saving Private Ryan would make the list. It would probably make the top five. It would probably make the top three. This is a movie that's so, so good, directed by Steven Spielberg. And, you know, it, it tells these incredible stories. But part of what I love about it is focus on World War II. I don't know what it is about World War II that's so interesting to me. As I think about it, one of the things I think is it's one of the times in recent history, if we want to call World War II recent history, where it's very clear. The line between good and bad. You know, good and evil. Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? It's pretty clear in World War II how that happens. Yet, one of the things this film does is in the midst of this great war, it talks about some decisions that have to be made where this distinction, this contrast between right and wrong, good or bad, it's not so readily apparent. What is the right thing to do? What's the good thing to do? Should we send a whole bunch of soldiers to go and find one lost soldier and to save him and to bring him home? Doesn't it seem like maybe a waste of resources, some people might think? Doesn't it seem a little too risky? Doesn't it seem, I don't know, reckless? And so I love the response of the general in that clip we just watched. He says, the boy is alive and we are going to send someone to find him. Steven Spielberg is just a master storyteller, but let's be honest, he steals from Jesus I mean, this is Luke chapter 15, right? Luke chapter 15 is this story of a rescue mission that is risky, that is life or death. And, and we want to dig into it today. And just like in, in World War II, there's these great contrasts, in Luke chapter 15, we see some great contrasts as well. And I want to dig into some of those contrasts uh, tonight. The first contrast I want us to look at is the contrast between grumbling and rejoicing. Grumbling and rejoicing. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up uh, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 begins this way. The tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. And so, these two verses... These two verses are Jesus set up for the rest of the chapter, three stories that he tells. And the three stories that Jesus tells, they are all about God's heart for sinners. What we see in the first two verses, we see the heart of the Pharisees and tax collectors towards sinners, stay away from them, you know, steer clear of them, don't talk to them unless you're going to talk to them about how undeserving they are. And so one of the things we see in in the Bible, the New Living Translation is the translation of the Bible we typically teach and preach from here at Hope. It says the tax collectors and and the the religious leaders and the Pharisees are complaining that Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. They're complaining. Some other translations say they're muttering, they're grumbling. When's the last time you muttered? When Iowa State got called for that interference that wasn't really interference, or every time Iowa runs an offensive play, maybe, I don't know, Um, muttering and grumbling. I was thinking to myself, and maybe this would be a good thing for you to do, just take some time this week to pay attention, what is it in your life that causes you to mutter and to grumble, and if you're really brave, give your spouse or your children or a really good friend permission to call you on it this week when they observe you grumbling. And if I'm going to ask you to do it, I thought I would do it myself. So I was coming up with a list. What are some of those things in my life that make me grumble? I don't know if this happens in your house. Sometimes I open the refrigerator door and the cap to the milk carton isn't on it. How does that happen? You take out the milk, you pour a bowl of cereal, you put the lid back on it before you put it away, right? Or sometimes the cupboards have empty cereal boxes in them. If it's empty, throw it away. Grumble, grumble, mutter, mutter. How about uh, styles of clothing? This is, you know, people complain all the time. Every generation, we complain about, what are those kids doing today? So they're wearing saggy pants or whatever. I like this one because somebody put a sketch of what anatomically must you look like if it... You need to go see a doctor or something. What about... Parents who don't play by the rules in the pick-up-and-drop-off line at mumble, mumble, grutter, yeah, grumble, mutter, whatever that is. How about stores that already have their Christmas stuff out and it's not even Thanksgiving? And it's one thing. Uh, it's not even Halloween. Sheesh. Ah, it's one thing to have a grumbling spirit, you know, with friends or family or work or that sort of thing. What about if a church has a grumbling spirit? Jesus has sent us on a rescue mission. And if a church is filled with this grumbling spirit, it sabotages that mission before it can even get started. And and please, i want to make sure you're hearing me correctly. This is not Pastor Scott saying, so if you observe anything in this church that we could do differently or better, shut up. I don't want to hear about it. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. Uh, There's all sorts of things that you probably observe that would be helpful for us to know. Please talk to us about it. Come, Come talk to me. Uh, talk to the pastor, talk to the staff member that it makes the most sense to talk to. Whoever, But understand, there's an appropriate way to gripe. And for us to learn what is the appropriate way to gripe, we'll go back to Saving Private Ryan, Captain Miller, and his company. Take a look. you want to explain the math of this to me?
0: I mean, where's the sense of risking the lives of the eight of us to save one guy?
1: 20 degrees.
0: Anybody want to answer that? There's not a the reason why, there's but to do and die. La, 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 la,
1: talking la, about our
0: duty as soldiers. Yes, sir. We all have orders and we have to follow them that supersedes everything, including your mothers.
1: Yes, sir. Thank you,
0: sir. Even if you think the mission's FUBA, sir.
1: Especially if you think the
0: mission's Fubar. What's Fubar?
1: Oh, it's German.
0: <laughs> yeah. You never heard of that. Sir? I have an opinion on this matter. Well, by all means, share it with the squad. Well, from my way, thank you, sir. This entire mission is a serious misallocation of valuable military resources. Ah, go on. Well, it seems to me, sir, that God gave me a special gift, made me a fine instrument of warfare. Riven, pay attention now. This is the way to gripe. Continue, Jackson. Well, what I mean by that, sir, is you used to put me and this here sniper rifle anywhere up to and including one mile of Adolf Hitler with a clear line of sight, sir? Back your bags, fellas, war's over. Amen. Oh, that's brilliant, Bumpkin. Hey, sir, Captain, what about you? I mean, you don't gripe at all? I don't gripe to you, Rybin. I'm a captain. There's a chain of command. Gripes go up, not down, always up. You gripe to me. I gripe to my superior officer, so on, so on, so on. I don't gripe to you. I don't gripe in front of you. You should know that as a ranger. I'm sorry, sir, but uh, let's say you weren't a captain, or maybe I was a major. What would you say then? Well, in that case, I say this is an excellent mission, sir, with an extremely valuable objective, sir, worthy of my best efforts, sir. Moreover, I feel heartfelt sorrow for the mother of Private James Ryan and willing to lay down my life and the lives of my men, especially you, Ryan to ease her suffering.
1: He's good. I love him. So the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law are grumbling because Jesus is spending too much time with sinners. He's hanging out with them. He's even eating with them, which in that culture, it it signifies a relationship. He's in a relationship with sinners. How can he be a holy man if he's in a relationship with sinners? Jesus, in this story in Luke 15, teaches us maybe there's a better way to respond to the sinners in our life, and that's with rejoicing. Just take a look at the text. He tells this story of a a sheep that gets lost, and the good shepherd goes after the sheep and finds him. In verse 5, it says, when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. Verse 6, when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. And then verse 7, in the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Joy, joy, joy. What is your response to sinners? And when you show up for worship, whenever it is you show up for worship, and you look around the room, because we all look around the room, you ever surprised by who you see? You ever find yourself going, what are they doing at church? Might not be grumbling but it's not necessarily rejoicing either, is it? And if you're not sure what your response is to sinners, is it grumbling or is it rejoicing? Let's look at another contrast that shows up in this story. It's the contrast between the many and the one. Jesus is telling this story, a shepherd has 100 sheep, one of them gets lost, what should he do? And let's read together verse four, this is what Jesus says the response should be. Read it out loud with me. Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it. Uh, The Greek word that gets translated wilderness in our English, it's a Greek word, eremos. Let's all say that out loud together. It's on the screen. Say it with me. Eremos. And and eremos, most of the time in Scripture, it's used to describe a deserted place. So it's a desert or a wilderness, a deserted place, a place that you can't use to grow crops. It can only be used as a place where maybe the flocks can uh, graze. It's a pasture land deserted place. But sometimes in the Bible, Eremos gets used to talk about people. And when it does, it's referring to people who have been deserted by others. People who've been deserted by others, people who uh, have been denied aid. They've been denied protection, especially by people who know them, friends, acquaintances, even family members. And so part of what Jesus is saying in this text, in this story about sheep, is he's really talking about people, and he wants his followers, he wants the church to be about building the kingdom of God, where we are willing to leave 99 in a deserted place in order to go after one who has been deserted. And for almost 25 years now, Lutheran Church of Hope has been doing this. This is our mission. This is our vision. uh, this, This is the way our core values guide us as a church. We'll put the mission statement up on the screen, and let's read this out loud together. Read it with me reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. We also have a vision statement, but I'm not gonna put it up on the screen because in two weekends from now, uh, the first weekend of November, when we celebrate Hope's 25th birthday, Pastor Mike is going to be vision casting for us. And, and Mike has been working really closely with a group of people, volunteers from every campus at Hope, including uh, Hope Ankeny. And he's been talking to the, with us as pastors and with staff members. We want to celebrate everything that God has done in and through hope over the last 25 years. But even more importantly, more exciting is what does God have in front of us? Because with God, our best days are always in front of us. With God, our best days are always in front of us. So Mike's gonna cast the vision and part of the work that this uh, vision team has done, we've actually tweaked uh, the vision statement for the first time in 25 years and it's really exciting stuff. Mike's gonna be teaching about that in two weeks and you're not gonna wanna miss it. Make sure uh, you come back for that. We have a mission, we have a vision, and we have core values. Here's one of our core values. Let's read this out loud together. Lost people matter to God, and so they matter to us. It comes right from this passage, Luke chapter 15. Jesus tells three stories, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Later on in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, just as clearly as he can possibly be, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. Well, part of what you notice as, as Jesus tells these stories, as, as Jesus talks about his vision, you see there's a movement. One of the things we say around hope a lot is God is on the move. In fact, let's say that together right now. God is on the move. And when you look at the way God moves in Scripture or the way God moves in the person of Jesus Christ, you see it's a movement toward sinners. It's a movement toward people who are lost you you think about our mission statement reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ when a church is following Jesus and moving with Jesus in a God honoring faithful way it's moving outward it's looking outward but there's a great temptation for human beings and for organizations that are made up of human beings like a church there's a great temptation for us to turn our focus Inward. And I like the way a pastor named Andy Stanley talks about this. Look what Andy Stanley says. The gravitational pull of every church is toward keeping people rather than reaching people. Let me say that one more time. The gravitational pull of every church is toward keeping people rather than reaching people. Our mission is to reach out. That's why we had our giving campaign last year, Building to a Hope Beyond. In particular, we want to reach out to youth and family, to young people, to uh, students and to young families. And we want to reach out to them because it's really exciting if we can get a hold of people at at an early age and get them excited about this life that God has for us. Uh, This new addition that we want to build, it's primarily gonna be a youth and family wing. Like everything at Hope, we'll use it for everything, but the primary focus is to make more room, more space, better usable space for youth and family ministry. We had more kids at Vacation Bible School this summer than we've ever had in the history of Hope Ankeny. No reason why that's not gonna continue to grow year after year. If you come here on Wednesday nights, it's amazing what is happening on Wednesday nights And, and the way that God is growing the faith of our young people. It's exciting and it's important for all kinds of reasons. One of the reasons why it's important is research continues to show the fastest growing religious group in America today is a group called the Nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. About five years ago, uh, the Pew Institute did a huge survey, uh, uh, the religious landscape of America. And one of the things they discovered, if you break it down into generational categories, the generation that has the most nuns, and nuns are people who say they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And in that study five years ago, millennials, youngest generation that that was studied, 35% of millennials said they are nuns, no religious affiliation. And that was five years ago. Uh, They haven't done as extensive a study uh, since, but some of the studies that are coming out, it's now in the 40s, it's pushing 50. There's another group called uh, the Duns, Duns are people who have been to church, tried church, and now they're just done with church. Maybe they got dissatisfied with something that was happening in a church. Maybe they got frustrated, maybe they got hurt, and maybe they did the right thing, and they went to the leadership of the church, and they talked about, here's what's going on, and instead of taking responsibility, the leadership of the church pointed fingers at them and said, you're the problem, you're the one to blame, and so they're just done. So again, look at these statistics, 59% of millennials. Now, again, you gotta understand this in order to be a done, you had to be a do first, right? So 59% of millennials who grew up in the church, 59% of millennials who grew up in the church now say they are done with church. And the primary reason they say for why they are done with church, they think the church causes more harm than good. Let that sink in. Young people, a lot of young people think the church does more harm than good. Now, how do you respond to these statistics? Does it make you grumble or does it make you rejoice? And maybe we should define rejoice a little bit. I'm not sure we should be rejoicing that fewer and fewer people are interested in faith, but it does present a pretty incredible opportunity as we look to the future, doesn't it? And as we look to the future, as we think about what's the vision for hope over the next decade or so, what does God want to do in us? What does God want to do through us? part of what we have to do is start asking some questions. If these trends continue next 15 years, next 20 years, what is that gonna mean for the church? Well, Luther Seminary just up Interstate 35 in St. Paul, the seminary that a lot of the hope pastors graduated from, they were looking at these numbers and these trends as it relates to the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the denomination that hope is a part of, and look what they discovered. Uh, When the ELCA started, Well over 3 million worshiping across America every weekend. In 2017, I don't know if you can read this or not, so I'll just tell you. In 2017, the number of worshipers every weekend in the ELCA had dwindled from above 3,000 to down to 899,000. And so they just projected out, if the current rate of decline continues, by the time we get to the year 2041, the prediction is 15,000 people. 15,000 people worshipping in ELCA churches all across the country. How do these trends get started? We have to be brutally honest, don't we? And if we're willing to be brutally honest, we might we just might actually hear an answer. Well- You remember that song? What about me? What about me? When when the leadership of the church makes this kind of the driving force behind what we do and why we do it, I just look. I like movies, so let's show movie clips without paying attention to what God might be wanting us to do, how God might be leading us, and we're not. I'm just going to do what I like, what I prefer, and we're not going to take time to pray and allow God to lead us. That turns a church inward in a hurry. And so again, I want us to be thinking about this. I want us to be thinking about Vision Night. I want us to be thinking about why we should come to this. Why should we focus on ministry to uh, young people, to students, to uh, young families? And yes, we might say, well, what, what about other generations? Of course, we want you. We need you. You have something to offer as we carry out our mission of reaching out to these people who need to know the hope that Jesus has for us. If we can get a generation that's increasingly disinterested in faith and in church excited about the life God has for us, watch out. Leadership of church can get in the way on this. We can start singing, What About Me? So can people in the congregation, What About Me? Who, whoever is doing it, when people in the church are kind of grumbling and griping and saying, What About Me? I want to do it this way. I want to do it. And we're not focused on what is God doing and where is God leading us? It turns us inward and it sabotages the mission. Jesus tells three stories. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. In the story of the lost son, uh, the son actually ends up coming home at one point. And the father sees him and there's this great party, they throw this party, everybody is celebrating. Well, not everybody, there's one person who is grumbling rather than rejoicing. Remember who that is? (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh, the older son what about me? What about me? What about me? Over and over and over. I stayed. I did everything that I was supposed to do. I did everything my dad asked me to do. I did above and beyond. And if anyone deserves to have a party thrown for them, it's me. It's the older son. I've earned it. Remember I said Luke 15 is this passage that is filled with, it's filled with these major contrasts. And so one final contrast for us to talk about. The contrast between being lost and being found. The contrast between being lost and being found. So the first story Jesus tells is about a lost sheep. And there's a shepherd who searches for that lost sheep until it's found. Second story, lost coin. And there's a woman who searches for the lost coin until it's found. Third story, lost son. Who searches for the lost son? Who searches for the lost son? Nobody. Nobody. Why not? Somebody's searching in the first two. Why doesn't anybody search for the lost son? Jesus is a master storyteller, and there's so much that is going on here. And and look at what Jesus says at the end of the first two stories. In the same way, he says. In the same way. I think go back a slide, it'll say that. In the same way, there's great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. In the same way, there's great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So I was reading these commentaries and what are people, why do people think nobody is going searching in the story of the lost son? And a, a lot of the response was, well, it's to show, it's to highlight the importance of repentance. The son had to change his ways. He had to change his behaviors. He had to stop what he was doing and start acting in a different way. He had to make the decision to return home to the Father. That's what repentance is all about, and that's why nobody searches for him. He has to repent. Okay, I guess that kind of makes sense, except that doesn't seem to me to be what the text is saying. Jesus is focusing in on repentance. So let's just ask it simply. What does the sheep do to get found? (laughs) Nothing. What does the coin do to get found? Nothing. Maybe, maybe Jesus is trying to teach us something about repentance that we don't fully understand. He's telling this story, and he gets to the the third story, right? The lost son. And nobody goes searching for the lost son. Everyone listening to Jesus tell that story would have known somebody was supposed to go and look for him. There's one person whose role was to go and search for the lost son. Who was it? It's the older brother, the older son. That was his job. It's a story as old as Cain and Abel. God says to Cain, where's your brother? And Cain's response, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, actually you are. And so remember what would happen with the inheritance in that day in in the biblical world. They would give the inheritance to who? The oldest son. Now, in this story that Jesus tells, it says the younger son comes and he asks for his share of the inheritance. Understand, it is not a 50-50 split. Yeah, he gets a little bit, but it's not enough for a whole lot. And he wastes it and he squanders it in a hurry in wild living. And so the job, the responsibility of the older brother who's been given the lion's share of the inheritance the reason they did it, might not make sense to us. We're living in a different cultural context, a different economic context. We might not understand why not divide it evenly, especially those of us who are not oldest sons. We're like, how come man?" The reason they did it that way, they had reasons for it. It kept the family together. It helped keep the family. The, the idea was to use it to protect and care for the family. So remember that word? Remember that word that we talked about earlier, wilderness, eremos? It can mean a deserted place, but it can also mean a deserted person. And and one of the ways people got deserted in the biblical world was when their family didn't take care of them. To be deprived of aid, especially by your family, is an Eremos person, a deserted person. And so just like the good shepherd leaves the 99 in the deserted place to go and look for the deserted one, a good older brother would have gone to the father and said, This can't happen. I am not gonna desert my little brother. I'm not gonna deprive him of the help that I can give him. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna search for him, I'm gonna find him, and I'm gonna bring him home. But that does not happen in this story. It doesn't happen because the older son is just as lost as the lost son. The older son is just as lost as the lost son, he's just lost in a different way. He thinks he can save himself. Look at everything I have done. I've done all of this, therefore, I deserve, I have earned the party that dad has thrown for my prodigal brother. I've done it all, I've earned it all, I can save myself. And and how many times do we kind of act in a similar way? We act in a way where, God, look at everything I do for you, Lord. Therefore, I deserve to have my prayers answered. Therefore, I deserve to have a good life. Therefore, I deserve to go to heaven when I die because I've done all of this for you. And again, pay attention to the math. If I do A, B, and C, then God will do X, Y, and Z. And it becomes this formula, and it becomes a formula where I'm in control. If I act the right way, if I behave the right way, then I can get God to act on my behalf. Well, if I can get God to act on my behalf, who's God in that equation? I'm God. I can save myself. The older brother believes by his behavior and his action, he can save himself. I wonder if Jesus is trying to teach us something about repentance. That repentance is not just changing our behavior. Repentance is also changing our belief. That that we're all sinners. That none of us can save ourselves. That we all need someone to search for us, to find us, to rescue us to save us. As Jesus is telling this story, I think the people listening to him, and I think we probably do the same thing. It's like, okay, so Jesus is putting people into two different camps. And on one side, we've got people who are lost, people who are prodigal, who are naughty, who don't behave well, they're disobedient. And this is, these are the people, this is the group of people that God hates. And on the other side, we've got the found. We have the righteous, we have the morally pure, we have the people who are good enough, the people God loves. But if you look closely at what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying, Jesus doesn't play these labeling and categorizing games. Jesus says there's only one group of people. They're sinners. And sometimes we tell people who are new to hope, we're glad that you are here, we sure hope you're sitting in the sinner section. You know where the center section is, right? This is it, every single seat is the center section. One group of people, sinners who are loved by God. God loves you, God searches for you when you are lost, God finds you at great cost, God saves you. So one more clip from this movie, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, Private Ryan actually gets saved and it costs Captain Miller and his company greatly how do you respond when somebody does something this incredible for you, when someone saves you, when God saves us? In this movie, it's other soldiers who save you. How do you respond to that? Here's how Private Ryan responds. Take a look.
0: They're tank busters, sir, P 51s. Angels on our shoulders. What, sir? My family is with me today. They wanted to come with me. To be honest with you, I... I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that, at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. James? Captain John H. Miller. me I have led a good life. What? Tell me I'm a good
1: man. You are. The first time I watched that movie, I was on a date with my wife. <laughs> And as the credits started to roll, I just started to sob in my seat. And she's looking at me like, oh boy. (laughs) And, And seriously, for like a minute, I couldn't move. I was just crying so hard. And I've watched that movie, I don't know how many times, but what I realized when I was watching it, I was in the same kind of place, like wondering if I'm good enough. I was working in a church. I was getting ready to go to seminary and I was wondering Am I living a good enough life to earn what God has done for me? I don't know. As I watched that clip this week, something else struck me. Not just the burden, the weight that he carried, Private Ryan, for the rest of his life, wondering if he had earned the sacrifice. But the thing I noticed this time as I watched is he he had been saved. This incredible thing had happened, and he hadn't told anyone. He hadn't told his wife. She sees that grave marker of Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, and she's like, who's that? She had no idea. God loves us. God's come to heaven, from heaven to earth for us, to save us, great cost, to give us grace. Do you remember the joy of your salvation? Do you remember how precious that grace appeared the hour you first believed? In in, in a way that blew you away and you were overwhelmed by God's goodness and God's love in your life and you just knew that you knew that you knew that there was a God and God's grace was real and it was for you when's the last time you told anyone about it when's the last time you shared that story with a family member with a friend, a neighbor, a coworker? I know it's not even Halloween but we've been thinking about Christmas a lot here at Hope we're going to have nine Christmas Eve services over the course of four days. And I want to give you a Christmas Eve challenge today, October 19th. I want you to start sharing your story. Our mission is to reach out. Share your story with the people in your life. You don't have to find somebody new to share it with. You have people you can share this with who've never heard this story. People who maybe put themselves in a category of lost or hopeless or unlovable. And they need to hear this story. Just start looking for opportunities and asking God to give you opportunities to share that story, your story, not just some you know, random general theological concept, but your story. And if you don't have one, let's talk. And maybe some people say, well, Pastor Scott, I don't want to invite people to Christmas Eve because it's our family time, we have these traditions around it. Okay, we have nine Christmas Eve services <laughs> over four days. You can do your traditional family stuff and i want you to it's awesome it's holy it's good and you have time to invite someone to come with you and sit with you to hear this good news this greatest story ever told a god who comes busting down doors to save us to give us love let's stand and let's sing about that love